Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Today's episode is brought to you in partnership with the CBI. The CBI are one of the biggest lobby groups in the United Kingdom, representing almost 200,000 members. This was one of their live events on the future of work. They assembled a great cast list of characters to talk about the future of our economy, including the likes of Sir Trevor Phillips, the Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, the Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work, Angela Rayner, and representatives from Microsoft and the University of Birmingham. I chaired the final panel of the day with BAE Systems. BAE Systems help governments, their armed forces, and security services defend countries in the air, at sea, on land, in space, and the cyber world. In the UK, they help build submarines, warships, and some of the world's most advanced military aircraft, including the RAF's Typhoon Fastjet. They deliver 10 billion to the UK economy annually, employing 35,000 people across 50 sites, spending 170 million pounds a year on training. In this episode, we are joined by the COO of the Air Division, Ian, and Anastasia, who joined as an apprentice 16 years ago. This episode was done in partnership with the CBI. To learn more about how you can partner with us, check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. So now we'll go live on stage, or if you prefer, you can watch it on our YouTube channel. And so I, I left three years ago, and like a lot of special advisors over the last few years, I found myself unemployed. We left to, I left to start a family um, and work out what I was going to do with my career next. Went off to study at Stanford for a bit, and then March 2020 happened, and we all remember our March 2020s. Uh, my wife went back to work because she worked in the NHS as a doctor, and I became a stay-at-home dad to our five-month-old. So I had very much gone from Downing Street to diapers. Um, and I'll let you decide where I had to deal with more tantrums during that phase. But during that, I listened to a lot of audio and podcasts to try and entertain us. And I came up with the idea of, is there a way that we can help tackle the unemployment crisis that we thought was going to be coming up? And that's where Jimmy's Jobs of the Future was born, because it also came from when I was in number 10, it would be my responsibility to go in and tell the PM that Debenhams were just about to announce that they were making 12,000 jobs redundant. And Theresa May would often say to me, well, yeah, we're still at record high levels of employment. Where are all these jobs coming from? And it's a question that endlessly fascinates me about how is our economy being structured in the future of work? Where are these jobs being created? And it's entrepreneurs and it's business leaders like you every day that are doing that. Um, and today I am delighted to be hosting this panel on social mobility because it is the way that we can climb fastest through the ranks is through a career. And that is the most powerful thing that private enterprise can provide. And that needs to be something that is made the case of more in our politics and in our media. And so it gives me great pleasure to welcome BAE Systems to the stage today. We're going to hear from the Chief Operating Officer of BAE Air, which is basically flying planes, which I'm incredibly excited to ask all about that, and drones. And also we're going to hear from Anastasia, who is 32 years old, recently been through the Apprentice Programme, and it's a real-life example of how apprenticeships and the routes to work are changing. So, please welcome to the stage Ian and Anastasia. 
Ian, what does social mobility mean to you? Great question. Social mobility, to me, is about how we bring together economic prosperity, industry, education, government, to make sure that we've got lifelong careers for people that delivers economic benefits. As an example, in BA Systems, we've been doing that for over 50 years. Yeah, we are a global company. We operate in many countries. In the UK, we've got 50 sites. So those 50 sites are, are sustained by the communities they work in, the educational establishments that are in those communities, and we pull through as well as the supply chain that surrounds them. I think, I think social mobility is going to be looked like an ecosystem. It's not about private industry on its own. It's not about the educational establishments. It's not about government. It's about our whole ecosystem. If we look at through the lens of BA Systems, what's that ecosystem mean to me? And the one that sort of gets me out of bed every day. It's our people, our employees, and they mean a lot to me. It's our customers, the people who keep us safe at night. You know, and we look at what's happened in the past year. You know, our military is at the right or the sharp end. You know, and that defence and security enterprise delivering not only defence and security that keep us safe at night, but also prosperity mm. as well, and economic stability and high-tech skills. But it's also the supply chains, and including that, the academic supply chain as well. Uh, our investors, our shareholders, they're part of the party as well. But importantly, as I said, is our communities. And by working together, you create this real drive of social mobility. And with that, private industry can put in places like apprenticeships, graduate programs that brings people through and give people a lifelong career. You know, a portfolio career like my own. And what does it mean to you, Anastasia? What does social mobility mean? Personally, for me, so I think it's in ensuring that everybody has the opportunity to do well in life. I don't think it should matter. Well, it shouldn't matter you know, what your family background is, where, where you were born, what your parents did. To do well in life, for you to get far in life and have a good job, it should be based on your talent and hard work. And sadly, social mobility at the moment, especially in the UK, I think we're one of the poorest for social mobility within the developed world, which is a, a really sad state of affairs as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I think we all need to really do something about it and focus on it and make sure that we can give everyone an opportunity, a chance that they, they deserve really. And we'll come back to your story in particular in a, in a moment. But Ian, I just want to cast your mind back to the early 90s. You've been at BAE Systems throughout your entire career. What first attracted you to BAE Systems in the 90s? And what changes do you see with the people that you're recruiting today in terms of what they want from an employer? What, stuck, what attracted me was the fact I fell out of love with education. So I did my A-levels. Got to, I was going to go to university and thought took a deep breath. Uh, their members of my family worked at BA Systems and said, well, there's an apprenticeship here. Would you like to apply for it? Went through the, the, you know, the sort of interview and assessment process. And on the day of my assessment, uh, I walked through the gates at Wharton uh, in Lancashire. And you saw these people. I saw a few products flying around as well, but you saw people. And they were just people. And they looked just like anyone. It wasn't like they were like wearing white coats, you know, scientists or anything else <laughs> like that. They were just normal people. And that was the real draw. Uh, to me there and it's given me that lifelong portfolio career you know a third of my career I've spent overseas I've worked I'm an engineer chartered engineer but also I've run big P&L accounts big programs I've done strategy you know I've been lucky enough to do lots of different varieties of things. And is, is that what you mean by portfolio career yeah I can I've, yeah I've worked in different parts of the life cycle different different cultures different locations different products different functions and disciplines 
And, you know, no one's ever told me that I'm not good enough. You know, the BA system's a meritocracy. Mm. And, I, and I truly believe that. We don't sort of say, well, which school have you come from? Which, which degree you've got? It's, it's based on merit. And I think when you talk about social mobility, like Anastasia said, you know, we don't judge people about the backgrounds. We judge them about merit and what, they, you know, what value they can bring to the business and, and, and our customers. I think it's important. And Anastasia, what was your route to BAE Systems? All right, so I'll try not to make it long-winded. But I was one of them people that fell within the category of um, NEAT, so not an employment, education or training. I had a long-winded route of going through random qualifications, not getting GCSEs, having my son two days after my last GCSE exam, so that was pretty exciting. Um, being a single Probably made parent, GCSEs parents <laughs> insignificant, so you can imagine. Um, being a single parent, uh, being on lots of different kind of work, well, not work experience, getting to work, work capability programs and things like that. But to get into BE, um, or rather the opportunity that I was given, I actually attended a four-week program through Movement Work program, which was in partnership with the Prince's Trust. So for anybody that doesn't know about Movement Work, do some Googling about it. They're an absolutely fantastic charity. And the CEO at the moment is somewhere in here. She's also fantastic, so make sure you speak to her. <laughs> but I did a four-week work experience programme and um, off the back of that, they actually offered me um, a role in the business as a quality engineer. Now, just to give you a perspective, I didn't have a CV. I was terrible at interviews. Wouldn't know anything about a job application process or know anything about any of the jobs that were listed. I didn't ever experience, well, expect that I would get a job within BAE or have a career. And since doing that in 2014, I've been promoted twice. I've done a business apprenticeship. I have done my APM PMQ qualifications. I'm now a qualified project manager. And I'm currently en route to uh, try and gain my chartership for project management as well. So BAE took that time to um, put their effort and opportunity, well, put their effort into me and give me that opportunity. And I would like to think that I've managed to give back to them from, from that perspective. But also, I, I would not like to blow my own trumpet, but think they've managed to get um, a quality employee uh, come into the business, not through the usual route that you would usually have someone in the business, you know, through a generic um, interview, uh, CV being looked at, the application process. Because like I said, I wouldn't have hit the mark on 1% of any of that. And it's a great example of actually a socially mobile story, which is sometimes a bit lost in Whitehall speak um, and so forth. How do we get more people that are neats, as you describe them, not in education, training or employment, how do we get more of those into the workforce? How do we get more Anastasias? So <laughs> I've got a number of ways that I think we can go about it. Now, this is my personal perspective. It's not BE's perspective, just so you're aware. So there's a few things. So number one, you write in your job descriptions, competitive salary. Great. If it's so competitive, why are you not telling people what it is? Why have I got to ask what you're going to pay me for a job that I'm doing? That's your first one. The second one is, and we've heard it today, be flexible. So does that person actually need to be on site or in the office to do their job 24-7 or can they do it a day at home? The next one, apprenticeship requirements and um, entry requirements for jobs. So um, you're recruiting someone that's a PA. Do they need to have a project management degree or is that just something that you would desirably like? And if you want them to have that qualification and you think you found somebody who's the right candidate without that qualification, 
bring them into the business and then put them on in a, you know, a degree course or something like that. So there's that one. The other two is, so my first one um, that I think is really important. I know it was mentioned earlier today by Gillian, I think it was, that if you're not doing apprenticeships, you should be. If you're not doing T-levels, you should be. If you're not doing boot camps, you should be. Yes and no. I think what you need to do is look at one thing that suits your business, because not all these programs suit your business. Pick the one thing, make it your golden egg, make it work. You'll get more out of it than trying to implement 50 programs across work, as far as I'm concerned. And the final one is, um, so all of us in this room here, the majority are senior leaders. We're all here because we know that social mobility is important. We know how it benefits our business. What we need to do is get the people that are lower down in the business to also come and start attending conferences like this so they can get an understanding as to why it is actually important. And it's not just us as senior leaders going back in the business saying, I've had a nice day out at a conference, I've stayed in a nice hotel, here's loads of information that I want you to know. That's my take on it. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. But let me ask you a very practical question about where do you go to recruit from those places because I think it's one of the challenges for employers now in terms of like how do you actually reach these people because it's life has got this so much more fragmented and I went to see someone the other day we're recruiting for the podcast etc and like just reaching generally young people is quite difficult and I was kind of recommended to make a a TikTok and all these things that is really hard for people to kind of get their head around how to do that how would you what's the way of making an employer seem attractive and where do employers go to find those people so i think uh, the first answer i can uh, well first question i can definitely give something on so how can they make it attractive stop putting so much jargon in job descriptions i my son now is 16 he's been looking for a job i said you think about getting an entry-level role you know like uh, maybe cleaner cashier retail staff um, half of the jobs he went to apply for, the job titles have been changed to something absolutely dramatic like maintenance technician or marketing and sales research technician when it was just, uh, I'm not belittling the jobs by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a cashier role in a shop. I think that puts people off reading them sorts of job descriptions and titles and thinking, that sounds far too prestigious. I'm just coming out of school. How am I going to be able to do something like that? Okay. So, your job is capability portfolio bid manager. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? (laughs) In Leofin's terms, I look after, uh, well, I manage bids in the Eurofighter portfolio and I can't say anything else more because it's classified. (laughs) (laughs) Now... That should really attract a 16-year-old boy, I imagine, <laughs> that sort of illusion of it. Ian, tell us, tell us about your role and, and how BAE is divided up, right? Because you're, I mean, it, genuinely what I was saying in the introduction, it sounds like one of the coolest jobs, right, of what BAE Systems mm. does and what your role is, the Chief Operating Officer. Yeah, so um, what's BAE Systems made of? So it's made of a global enterprise that covers all aspects of defence and security, air, land, sea, cyberspace. Um, national security applications as well. Um, we don't just build stuff. We, we do the full end-to-end spectrum design, develop, test, and we also deliver services as well uh, all around the world. Yeah, my job is pretty cool. 
I enjoy it. It's good. Some aspects are classified, so I can't talk about them. But actually, what, what the big part of my job is enabling um, the business to perform. So I look after uh, all of our operational functions of engineering, manufacturing, IMT, project management, uh, quality, safety, support services, etc. And and you talked about movement to work and mobility. And movement to work, we're one of the founding members of that. And Charles, our CEO, is a massive advocate. Anastasia is one of 200 people. So it's not one or two. Mm. It was 200 people like Anastasia to come in. And you asked before, what does BA Systems do to bring, you know, how do you, do you do this? You've got to reach into the communities. So if you look at what we did last year, 27% of our apprenticeships came from disadvantaged backgrounds. So how was that done? We didn't just put big posters up. We had advocates out there. We've got five, 500 in the UK, 500 STEM ambassadors who don't go into just colleges and high schools, they go into primary schools. So even if you're a small employer or a big employer like BA Systems, you've got to get on your bike. You've got to go full court press. You've got to reach into the, that, that connection of giving someone a STEM interest brings people through, yes, through our traditional apprenticeships, but also how do you work with people like moving to work the Prince's Trust? to go and say, how do we get those people who, who don't get past the CV test? And that's important. And what the lessons learned for us out of the movement to work enterprise is how do you go beyond that? How do you look beyond the CV? How do you actually go and look at the behavior and the characteristics of individual and get that diversity? And that's what we've done with our apprenticeships in the last few years is open the aperture up. and says, how do we go and get people who aren't necessarily the most academic bright people out there, but how do we get them who can we do, how we can bring them in, nurture them, coach them. I'll give a good example of that. We've got a massive shortage of engineers in the UK. We all know that. But in particular, we've got a shortage of traditional craft. So we talked about digital skills in the last session. Yeah, we need loads of those. But I also need people who can, you know, fabricate, weld, machine, etc. And we've got a massive shortage of those in the UK. So one of the things we've done is, how do we get more school leavers? So how do we go after the 16-year-olds who might not want to go to college? How do we make ourselves attractive as an employer by showing that benefit People who might not want to progress up, but we give them a lifelong career, stability, you know, good, you know, a good wage, a good, uh, you know, good work-life balance. And that's a key thing. Spinning back to my role, that's what I do. I try to enable the business by not... I can play around with technology and we can talk about all day about technology, but my biggest part of my role is enabling through people. And I drive it through, through the operational functions I own, and the operations, all the stuff I deliver on behalf to enable the, our businesses to do what they do. It's, the, it's about a people factory and how we sustain that through lifelong learning, through investment, through skills generation. And that's how we continually do it. And we've been doing this for decades. And so, and I know you're going to partly say you can't talk about it, but <laughs> what does the future of kind of aviation, air defence look like? We were talking beforehand and I talked about one of my favorite jobs that i bang on about the future is a drone pilot and you said well the thing is jimmy they're not going to be piloted right but give us an example of so if you look at where the future is and the uk is at the forefront of this um tempest so it was you know formally publicly launched in 2018 with a combat air strategy by the then prime minister theresa may fast forward to last year at farnborough we announced that the uk is designing and building the next generation tempest demonstrator which is a uh, supersonic, crude, stealthy demonstrator, and it will fly within the next five years. That's well in advance of what we've done before, the skills around that to do that. So that's, what we're going to be, that's the next generation, so that's the replacement of Typhoon 
and, and, and other platforms as we go forward. Uh, and that is, that's going to go into service in 2035. Mm. So that's not far away. Yeah. It's 12 years. Yeah. So you've still got a chance. So you've got yeah, a chance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We can be crap why I'm asking so many <laughs> yeah. questions. Yeah, get the apprentice up. Yeah, yeah. Out. yeah. So, uh, we've got 12 years to do that, which is half the time we developed Typhoon and what, what Lockheed developed F-35 in. So we're having to bring all those digital skills, new ways of working. We've got Factor of the Future, which has got over 50 partners in it, including big hyperscalers like Siemens and other people involved in that. But within that, there's also going to be autonomous collaborative platforms or drones, like the public sort of, or uh, UAVs as people might do. They are not going to be piloted in the future. Why is that? Because autonomy, AI, is going to be key to doing that. It, it doesn't mean that you take humans out of the loop completely because you've got the ethical question and everything else in there. And the high-tech skills we need from our young people coming through is not around just around traditional aerospace aeronautical skills. Uh, manufacturing skills, it's also how, how to bring around uh, artificial intelligence, autonomy. The UK is one of the world leaders in gold-based autonomy. Our academic research in, in AI and autonomy is world-class. And if we can maximise that and bring the right skills of people together, you know, the UK has got a prospering opportunity, not just with Tempest and or what he's called with the collaboration with Italy and Japan, uh, GCAP, that was signed by the Prime Minister at the end of last year. But in all applications, not just in defence and security, but in all walks of life. And I think that's really important to recognise. If we keep on building that skills foundation factory as, a, as an enterprise in the United Kingdom, we could go after this in, in big time and be a world leader. And how do you, how do you recruit, you've talked about it a bit, a diverse workforce, but you know, how do you recruit women in particular? I mean, this is a question to both of you as well, right? Because there's there's an image of what BAE stands for, et cetera, and it may not, you know, it's probably more appealing to men than it is women off the face of it. So how do you go about that? Put me on the spot, Wired, won't you? <laughs> so I guess there's a, a couple of different ways that we do it. So the first one, Ian touched on the um, STEM ambassador stuff that we do. Um, so, and talking about going into primary schools, not just secondary schools. Um, so the great thing uh, that we do, uh, our Wharton Salisbury unit, is we have a, a wonderful massive um, skills academy we get children as young as four and five to come in and do classroom workshops there now the uh, education station where they get to go they uh, get to try on um, pilots outfits and stuff like that learn about what an engineer is but also um, it looks out onto the shop floor where all the apprentices do all their um, hands-on training so um, I think that's the first bit that we try and target it you know, we have females on the shop floor in, in the apprenticeship, so that's great. The young children get to see that. The other one is, um, so we have a lot of internal initiatives around DNI, um, but they are quite well known outside of the business. So I used to be part of, um, well, I used to be vice chair of a network called the Inspiring Women Network. And we do have a gen network as well. And there is All In Club and other stuff like that. Um, but the Inspiring Women Network was focused on the fact that Within uh, BE Systems Air, there is uh, a massive percentage of men more in manufacturing roles, engineering yeah. roles, than there is women. And, and the percentage is sadly not as changed as, as we would all like to over the years. But the good thing is when it comes to um, careers fairs for apprenticeships and uh, stuff like that, we also take information about the Inspiring Women Network with us, or at least I used to when I used to go to them, um, to make uh, people aware that actually... There is support there for women coming into the business. Please don't feel like you're, you're 
the only female that's coming in the shop floor. But also we have a, a big visibility as well. So we do a lot of things around social media. Um, you know, we, we try to let people know that there is women that work within the engineering roles and obviously show them off, as well as the wonderful um, men that work for us as well. Um, so, there's that, so there's loads of different kinds of things that we do, really. Um, the other thing is, is the STEM ambassadors that go to the careers fairs. We make a point of um, getting STEM ambassadors from all of the different apprenticeship schemes um, and get a few from different each of the schemes so that when people in the schools are coming and talk to us, um, we've got representation from all of the different diverse and inclusive groups that we have um, in the hope that that then lets them know that actually... Because uh, people have this perception that BE is just um, mainly men over the age of 50 who are white... Who, yeah, yeah, no offence. I'm not 50. I'm not 50. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you, did, you did start working for BA just around the time I was born. <laughs> just, just to make you feel old. <laughs> but um, we do, we, yeah, there is a lot of things that we do around that to let people know that obviously there is women in the business as well. And you have also talked about one of the things already, in about sort of diversity, not just being diversity that we can see, but also disadvantaged, et cetera, mm. which I think is really important. What I'm going to come to questions in a moment as well. So get your thinking caps on if you've got um, questions. But what's the in terms of the future of work? What's the biggest difference that you think we're going to see pre post pandemic? In general, yeah. Uh, in general, okay. And I'll, I'll, as somebody who's having to run, like I've been doing. So the future of work is going to be. And someone talked about uh, one of the panels earlier about flexibility, uh, and we're going to have to try different things, experiment with different things. And understand what works. In my, you know, in my industry, um, you can't build a submarine or a combat fighter on your kitchen table, and you can't engineer it. You can't engineer a lot of it because it's highly classified and secure. So it's pretty difficult to do that. So you've got to think about how we're going to embrace that flexibility that we need to give to our workforce uh, without compromising the outcomes that we deliver to our customers. And I think you can apply the same principles to most industries. Yes, some industries you could do completely remote and some skills you could do completely remote. But I think someone said earlier, you might miss context. You might misinterpret something. You might not solve the problem <coughs> as quick as you would do if you're working together. So I think you've got to create flexibility. I think from a, an employer's perspective, we've got to embrace flexibility. We've got to encourage that. We've got to bring the digital tool sets with us uh, to enable to do that. And you know, leaders like myself, we've got to be digitally empowered, digitally native, so that you you actually got an idea of what you're talking about rather than just preaching it and not doing it. I think one of the things that you, you, to be able to get that flexibility right, you've got to invest. And I think you've got to look at how you bring through talent, how you bring through um, the skills, how do you give people that lifelong learning as well so they can progress in their careers. Uh, but also I think you've got to bring um, a point of where you want to do something differently and you do different things. So you can't just apply the same recipe in a hybrid working environment. It don't work. So do, don't work. do you think it'll change that? Because one of the things that I'm struck with is that, that people, people's lives change, right? To state the obvious mm. in terms of there are periods in your life when you need more flexibility and less. And it doesn't go one way and, and stay that way. Like it kind of comes back and whatever with kids and such like. So do you think that'll be a bit more of the kind of way of thinking then and, and sort of employers will have to be a bit more kind of understanding and sometimes it's people don't always know what they you know they say they want flexibility and whatever and so many of these conversations about the future of work sort of end up coming back to 
are we going to do you know three or four days in the office then right but actually it's it, like you say it's so much more precise than that it, it is and uh, um, I, th- I think if you want if you go back to you know people with a sense of belonging when you go back to human nature yep. you would create a sense of belonging so as an employer you know someone I look after you know sort of circa 20,000 people in the air sector you know 12,000 in the UK 8,000 internationally so you've got to think about what that sense of belonging has got to look like and by creating that sense of belonging you can give people options and choice but you give them a surety with that belonging you give them a level of surety we've got a plan we've got a long-term business it's not feast or famine and then around that you can say well what fits and works for people and you, someone said it earlier and I completely agree you've got to plan your way through it you can't just knee jerk and go what's the next fad you've got to be able to plan that but indoctrinate that as part of your your policies your strategy your, your uh, management training your leadership behaviours etc and if you look at if you can do that I think you create a big pull and I think we, as industry I'm not talking about BA systems here I think industry collectively whether you're in public sector private sector voluntary sector we've got a real challenge to be able to offer a different proposition to those people out there over 900,000 young people are inactive either educationally or economically how do we do something different and by creating that future of work we can pull those in we can give a give the the next generation of Anastasia is a different a different a different opportunity but the the future of work's going to be bring that together and, and show people it's not a very corporate face it's actually a very community-centered people-centered enterprise, wherever you are. I'm not just talking about BA systems here. And that means you've got to do, you've got to go beyond the factory gates. You've got to beyond your office front door into those communities to be able to do that and sell that flexibility. But also put different offerings on the table as well, whether it's through apprenticeships, movement to work, or just life, you know, giving people that lifelong learning. Definitely. Questions. I did say we'd be coming. There are roaming mics around. So I can't see that well because of the lights, but are there one here at the front? Can you say your name and where you're from as well? Yeah, uh, Karen Hockaday from Kingston Technology. Um, I was curious what you were saying about traditional engineering, and I was wondering if the uh, pool of candidates or potential people to pull through, uh, if that's diminished in recent years. And I'm thinking particularly in competition with what might be perceived as cooler jobs in technology like games designing and so on that uh, you hear young people talking about as an aspiration? Our, our sort of um, current uh, evidence says, uh, no, that's not diminishing, but it's how you sustain them through, but also target in specific areas. So um, generally, our, the applications to our apprenticeship programmes are in the factor of 20 to 1 or, uh, over there, but it's making sure they're in the right location. So it's also about how we get the work to the people rather than having to shift people to our big sort of sites, whether it's in Barrow, Glasgow, Wharton, Sarnsbury. So how do we, op- how do we open the aperture of that, that future flexibility of be able to have those skills in different locations? And that's one of the challenges we have to think of. That traditional engineering skill set, I think, is really important. And it goes back to what Anastasia said, is that's where the STEM ambassadors come in. It's not just about the digital skill sets, AI and everything else. It's about some traditional uh, things in there. How do you attract people like Anastasia some into those areas who might not have the best academic record, but we can give them the skills, we can train them to task. So we've got to work together, and I think we've got to work together as a collective to say, these are still important. You still need that new digital skill sets, but you need the real traditional ones. As I said, you can't 
There's, you can't build a submarine on your kitchen table. You can't build the next generation of fighter on your kitchen table. You know, you've got to have those traditions, the blend of traditional and new skills bringing together. And that's what will deliver, not just what I need, but I think economic prosperity in the United Kingdom as well. I really believe that. 100%. It also drives me crackers. When I go into schools and speak to kids and say, uh, yeah, who wants to work at Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, etc.?" or even video games design, right? Uh, you'll get half the room put their hands up and then you'll say, who's going to go and study engineering? And you'll get like, or who's even thinking about it, right? And you'll just get like a smattering of hands. It's like, that's what those guys need and want more than anything. I think it's so important that we kind of make that argument. Um, we're just going to finish with one final question to Anastasia, which is, what advice would you give a to the room, but also to Ian in terms of how do you get a diverse workforce? How do you get out there and mix things up and recruit different people? So I think I covered on it a bit earlier. I think it's changing the traditional way that we've looked at recruiting people. Um, I, I, I've personally seen since um, working within BE and getting to uh, be a Movement Away ambassador as well, I've personally seen um, a lot of really good, talented people coming into the business through being given the chance to show what they're capable of through um, doing work experience rather than the traditional writing your job application, doing an interview, um, et cetera, et cetera. And some of them people, yes, they've not done well in school. Yes, they don't really have any qualifications. It looks like they haven't really got anything to offer but actually the soft skills that they've got that they've brought into the business. And then all the technical stuff that, yeah, maybe you wanted them to have coming into the business, you can develop them into that. And just one other point, people who get brought into them roles through, through them roots, um, it's usually a better retention rate because they're seen as having had somebody um, spend time on them. What was the moment at BAE Systems where you felt comfortable or you, you thought, I'm... I'm going to make it here oh that's a tough one that one honestly uh i think i knew at the end of my work experience scheme before i'd even been offered a role within to the business and i don't mean that off the cuff um my confidence grew within the four weeks and i do remember at the end of the four week program i was stood in a room at be um, and i had to do a presentation to um senior leaders in the business i think dave holmes was one mm -hmm. of them uh, our manufacturing director and I remember standing there and saying, my confidence has grown so much, I am absolutely sure that I am going to be in this room again next year watching another Movement Awake cohort come through, and I am adamant that I am going to be employed by this business as a result. And that just goes to show the, the level in which my confidence grew from, from week one of crying and being adamant. I did, because I cried a lot and I had many anxiety attacks. I was adamant that no business, including BE, were going to take any chance with me. I thought they were just going to get me in on the taste today and go, who is this woman and what is she doing? And also the other thing that really got me, and I will be completely honest, I really thought no decent business would take me on because of my visible tattoos. And they didn't bat an eyelid in the slightest. They were not bothered. If anything, I was a bit shocked that nobody asked anything about them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is a podcast, so for the listeners, there's probably more <laughs> tattoos on Anastasia's left hand than there is in the entire audience of mine, <laughs> I dare say. So um, that 
well, they're in no doubt who Anastasia Jamfrey is now. Thank you so much for a brilliant session, both of you. That has been a real insight into actually how social mobility works, how employers can do it. That's been really valuable. Please, to the audience, do check out Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. I think you'll really enjoy it. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, Click on the links in the show notes below.